Chapter Thirty Two, Part One of the Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lonnie Small. The Betrothed by Alessandra Manzoni. Chapter Thirty Two, Part One. The difficulty of providing for the mournful exigencies of the times becoming daily greater, it was resolved on the 4th of May, in a council of the Curioni, to have recourse for aid and favor to the governor, and, accordingly, on the 22nd, two members of that body were dispatched to the camp, who represented to him the sufferings and poverty of the city, the enormous expenditure, the treasury exhausted and involved in debt, its future revenue in pledge, and the current taxes unpaid by reason of the general impoverishment produced by so many causes, and especially by the havoc of the military. They submitted to his consideration that, according to laws and customs which have never been repealed, and by a special decree of Charles V, the expenses of the pestilence ought to be defrayed from the king's exchequer, that, in the plague of 1576, the governor, the Marquis of Ayamonte, had not indeed remitted all the taxes of the chamber, but had relieved the city with forty thousand scudi from that same chamber. And finally they demanded four things. That, as once before already, the taxes should not be exacted. That the chamber should grant some supplies of money. That the governor should acquaint the king with the misery of the city and the territory and that the duchy should be exempted from again quartering the military, as it had been already wasted and destroyed by the former troops. Spinola gave in reply condolences and fresh exhortations. He said he was sorry he did not happen to be in the city, that he might use all his endeavors for its relief, but he hoped that all would be compensated for by the zeal of these gentlemen, that this was the time to expend without parsimony, and to do all they could by every means and as to the express demands, he would provide for them in the best way the times and existing necessities would allow. Nor was there any further result. There were indeed more journeys to and fro, new requisitions and replies, but I do not find that they came to any more determinate conclusions. Some time later, when the plague was at its greatest height, the governor thought fit to transfer his authority, by letters patent, to the High Chancellor Ferrer he having, as he said, to attend to the war. Together with this resolution, the de Curioni had also taken another, to request the cardinal archbishop to appoint a solemn procession, bearing through the city the body of San Carlo. The good prelate refused, for many reasons. This confidence in an arbitrary measure displeased him, and he feared that if the effect should not correspond to it, which he had also reason to fear, confidence would be converted into offense. He feared further that, if indeed there were poisoners about, the procession would afford too convenient opportunities for crime. If there were not, such a concourse of itself should not fail to disseminate the contagion more widely, a danger far more real. For the suppressed suspicions of poisonous ointments had, meanwhile, revived more generally and more violently than ever people had again seen, or this time they fancied they had seen, anointed walls, entrances to public buildings, 
doors of private houses and knockers. The news of these discoveries flew from mouth to mouth, and, as it happens even more than usual in great prepossessions, the report produced the same effect that the sight of it would have done. The minds of the populace, ever more and more embittered by the actual presence of suffering, and irritated by the pertinacity of the danger, embraced this belief the more willingly, for anger burns to execute its revenge, and would rather attribute evils to human wickedness, upon which it might vent its tormenting energies, than acknowledge them from a source which leaves no other remedy than resignation. A subtle, instantaneous, exceedingly penetrating poison were words more than enough to explain the virulence, and all other most mysterious and unusual accompaniments of the contagion. It was said that this venom was composed of toads, of serpents, of saliva and matter from infected persons, of worse still, of everything, in short, that wild and perverse fancy could invent, which was foul and atrocious. To these was added witchcraft, by which any effect became possible. Every objection lost its force. Every difficulty was resolved. If the anticipated effects had not immediately followed upon the first anointing, the reason was now clear. It had been the imperfect attempt of novices in the art of sorcery. Now it was more matured, and the wills of the perpetrators were more bent upon their infernal project. Now, had any one still maintained that it had been a mere trick, had any one still denied the existence of a conspiracy, he would have passed for a deluded or obstinate person, if, indeed, he would not have fallen under the suspicion of being interested in diverting public scrutiny from the truth, of being an accomplice, a poisoner. The term very soon became common, solemn, tremendous. With such a persuasion that poisoners there were, some must almost infallibly be discovered. All eyes were on the lookout. Every act might excite jealousy, and jealousy easily became certainty, and certainty fury. Ripamonti relates two instances, informing us that he had selected them not as the most outrageous among the many which daily occurred, but because, unhappily, he could speak of both as an eyewitness. On the day of I know not what solemnity, an old man more than eighty years of age was observed, after kneeling in prayer, to sit down, first, however, dusting the bench with his cloak. "'That old man is anointing the benches!' exclaimed with one voice some women who witnessed the act. The people who happened to be in church, in church, fell upon the old man. They tore his gray locks, heaped upon him blows and kicks, and dragged him out half-dead, to convey him to prison, to the judges, to torture. I beheld him dragged along in this way, says Ripamonti, nor could I learn anything further about his end, but indeed I think he could not have survived many moments. The other instance, which occurred the following day, was equally strange, but not equally fatal. Three French lads in company, one a scholar, one a painter, and the third a mechanic, who had come to see Italy, to study its antiquities, and to try and make money, had approached I know not exactly what part of the exterior of the cathedral, 
and stood attentively surveying it. One, two, or more passers-by stopped and formed a little group to contemplate and keep their eye on these visitors, whom their costume, their headdress, and their wallets proclaimed to be strangers, and what was worse, Frenchmen. As if to assure themselves that it was marble, they stretched out their hands to touch it. This was enough. They were surrounded, seized, tormented, and urged by blows to prison. Fortunately, the Hall of Justice was not far from the cathedral, and by still greater good fortune they were found innocent and set at liberty. Nor did such things happen only in the city. The frenzy had spread like the contagion. The traveller who was met by peasants out of the highway or on the public road was seen loitering and amusing himself, or stretched upon the ground to rest. The stranger in whom they fancied they saw something singular and suspicious in countenance or dress, these were poisoners. At the first report of whomsoever it might be, even at the cry of a child, the alarm was given, and the people flocked together. The unhappy victims were pelted with stones, or if taken were violently dragged to prison, and the prison, up to a certain period, became a haven of safety. But the decurioni, not discouraged by the refusal of the judicious prelate, continued to repeat their entreaties, which were noisily seconded by the popular vote. The bishop persevered for some time, and endeavored to dissuade them. So much and no more could the discretion of one man do against the judgment of the times, and the pertinacity of the many. In this state of opinion, with the idea of danger, confused as it was at that period, disputed, and very far from possessing the evidence which we have for it, it will not be difficult to comprehend how his good reasons might, even in his own mind, be overcome by the bad ones of others. Whether besides, in his subsequent concession, a feebleness of will had or had not any share, is a mystery of the human heart. Certainly, if, in any case, it be possible to attribute error wholly to the intellect, and to relieve the conscience of responsibility, it is when one treats of those rare persons, and assuredly the cardinal was one of that number, throughout whose whole life is seen a resolute obedience to conscience, without regard to temporal interests of any kind. On the repetition of the entreaties, then, he yielded, gave his consent to the procession, and further, to the desire, the general eagerness, that the urn which contained the relics of San Carlo should afterwards remain exposed for eight days to the public concourse on the high altar of the cathedral. I do not find that the Board of Health or the other authorities made any opposition or remonstrance of any kind. The above-named board merely ordered some precautions, which, without obviating the danger, indicated their apprehension of it. They gave more strict regulations about the admission of persons into the city, and to ensure the execution of them kept all the gates shut, as also, in order to exclude from the concourse as far as possible the infected and suspected, they caused the doors of the condemned houses to be nailed up, which, so far as the bare assertion of a writer, and a writer of those times, is to be valued in such matters, amounted to about five hundred. Three days were spent in preparations, and on the eleventh of June, which was the day fixed, the procession started by early dawn from the cathedral. A long file of people led the way, chiefly women, 
their faces covered with ample silken veils, and many of them barefoot, and clothed in sackcloth. Then followed bands of artificers, preceded by their several banners, the different fraternities, and habits of various shades and colors. Then came the brotherhoods of monks, then the secular clergy, each with the insignia of his rank, and bearing a lighted wax taper. In the center, amidst the brilliancy of still more numerous torches, and the louder tones of the chanting, came the coffin, under a rich canopy, supported alternately by four cannons, most pompously attired. Through the crystal sides appeared the venerated corpse, the limbs enveloped in splendid pontifical robes, and the skull covered with a mitre, and under the mutilated and decomposed features some traces might still be distinguished of his former countenance, such as it was represented in pictures, and as some remembered seeing and honoring it during his life. Behind the mortal remains of the deceased pastor, says Ripamonti, from which we chiefly have taken this description, and near him in person, as well as in merit, blood, and dignity, came the Archbishop Federigo. Then followed the rest of the clergy, and close behind them the magistrates, in their best robes of office, after them the nobility, some sumptuously apparelled, as for a solemn celebration of worship, others in token of humiliation, clothed in mourning, or walking barefoot, covered with sackcloth, and the hoods drawn over their faces, all bearing large torches. A mingled crowd of people brought up the rear. The whole street was decked out as at a festival. The rich had brought out their most showy decorations. The fronts of the poorer houses were ornamented by the wealthier neighbors, or at the public expense. Here and there, instead of ornaments, or over the ornaments themselves, were leafy branches of trees. Everywhere were suspended pictures, mottoes, and emblematical devices. On the window ledges were displayed vases, curiosities of antiquity, and valuable ornaments, and in every direction were torches. At many of these windows the sick, who were put under sequestration, beheld the pomp, and mingled their prayers with those of the passengers. The other streets were silent and deserted, save where some few listened at windows to the floating murmur in the distance, while others, and among these even nuns might be seen, mounted on the roofs, perchance they might be able to distinguish afar off the coffin, the retinue, in short, something. The procession passed through all quarters of the city. At each of the crossways, or small squares, which terminate the principal streets in the suburbs, and which then preserved the ancient name of Karobi, now reduced only to one, they made a halt, depositing the coffin near the cross which had been erected in every one by San Carlo during the preceding pestilence, some of which are still standing, so that they returned not to the cathedral till considerably past midday. But, lo, the day following, just while the presumptuous confidence, nay, in many the fanatical assurance prevailed, that the procession must have cut short the progress of the plague, the mortality increased in every class in every part of the city, to such a degree, and with so sudden a leap, that there was scarcely any one who did not behold in the very procession itself the cause and occasion of this fearful increase. But, oh, wonderful and melancholy force of popular prejudices, 
the greater number did not attribute this effect to so great and so prolonged a crowding together of persons, nor to the infinite multiplication of fortuitous contact, but rather to the facilities afforded to the poisoners of executing their iniquitous designs on a large scale. It was said that, mixing in the crowd, they had infected with their ointment everybody they had encountered. But as this appeared neither a sufficient nor appropriate means for producing so vast a mortality, which extended itself to every rank, as apparently it had not been possible, even for an eye the most watchful and the most quick-sighted from suspicion, to detect any unctuous matter or spots of any kind during the march, recourse was had for the explanation of the fact to the other fabrication, already ancient, and received at that time in the common scientific learning of Europe, of magical and venomous powders. It was said that these powders, scattered along the streets, and chiefly at the places of halting, had clung to the trains of the dresses, and still more to the feet of those who had that day, in great numbers, gone about barefoot. That very day, therefore, of the procession, says a contemporary writer, saw piety contending with iniquity perfidy with sincerity, and loss with acquisition. It was, on the contrary, poor human sense contending with the phantoms it had itself created. From that day the contagion continued to rage with increasing violence. In a little while there was scarcely a house left untouched, and the population of the Lazaretto, according to Samaglia above quoted, amounted to from two to twelve thousand. In the course of time, according to almost all reports, it reached sixteen thousand. On the fourth of July, as I find in another letter from the Conservators of Health to the Governor, the daily mortality exceeded five hundred. Still later, when the plague was at its height, it reached, and for some time remained, at twelve to fifteen hundred, according to the most common computation, and, if we may credit Tadino, it sometimes even exceeded three thousand five hundred. It may be imagined what must now have been the difficulties of the Decurioni, upon whom was laid the burden of providing for the public necessities, and repairing what was still reparable in such a calamity. They were obliged every day to replace, every day to augment, public officers of numerous kinds, monati, by which denomination even then at Milan of ancient date and uncertain origin, were designated those who were devoted to the most painful and dangerous services of a pestilence, by taking corpses from the houses, out of the streets, and from the lazaretto, transporting them on carts to the graves, and burying them, carrying or conducting the sick to the lazaretto, overlooking them there, and burning and cleansing infected or suspected goods. Apparatori, whose special office it was to precede the carts, warning passengers by the sound of a little bell to retire, and the commissari, who superintended both the other classes under the immediate orders of the Board of Health. The council had also to keep the lazaretto furnished with physicians, surgeons, medicines, food, and all the other necessaries of an infirmary, and to provide and prepare new quarters for the newly arising needs. For this purpose they had cabins of wood and straw, hastily constructed in the unoccupied space within the lazaretto, and another lazaretto was erected, also of thatched cabins, with an enclosure of boards, 
capable of containing four thousand persons. These not being sufficient, two others were decreed. They even began to build them, but, from the deficiency of means of every kind, they remained uncompleted. Means, men, and courage failed, in proportion as the necessity for them increased. And not only did the execution fall so short of the projects and decrees, not only were many too clearly acknowledged necessities deficiently provided for, even in words, but they arrived at such a pitch of impotency and desperation that many of the most deplorable and urgent cases were left without succor of any kind. A great number of infants, for example, died of absolute neglect, their mothers having been carried off by the pestilence. The Board of Health proposed that a place of refuge should be founded for these and for destitute lying-in women, that something might be done for them, but they could obtain nothing. The decurioni of the city, says Tadino, were no less to be pitied, who found themselves harassed and oppressed by the soldiery, without any bounds or regard whatsoever, as well as those of the unfortunate duchy, seeing that they could get no help or provision from the governor, because it happened to be a time of war, and they must needs treat the soldiery well. So important was the taking of Casali, so glorious appeared the fame of victory, independent of the cause of the object for which they contended. So also an ample but solitary grave which had been dug near the lazaretto, being completely filled with corpses, and fresh bodies which became day by day more numerous, remaining therefore in every direction, unburied. The magistrates, after having in vain sought for hands to execute the melancholy task, were compelled to acknowledge that they knew not what course to pursue. Nor was it easy to conjecture what would be the end, had not extraordinary relief been afforded. The President of the Board of Health solicited it almost in despair, and with tears in his eyes, from those two excellent friars who presided at the lazaretto, and Father Michel pledged himself to clear the city of dead bodies in the course of four days. At the expiration of eight days he had not only provided for the immediate necessity, but for that also which the most ominous foresight could have anticipated for the future. With a friar for his companion, and with officers granted him for this purpose by the President, he set off out of the city in search of peasants, and partly by the authority of the Board of Health, partly by the influence of his habit and his words, he succeeded in collecting two hundred, whom he distributed in three separate places, to dig the ample graves. He then dispatched Manati from the lazaretto to collect the dead, and on the day appointed his promise was fulfilled. On one occasion the lazaretto was left destitute of physicians, and it was only by offers of large salaries and honors, with much labor and considerable delay, that they could procure them, and even then their number was far from sufficient for the need. It was often so reduced in provisions as to raise fears that the inmates would actually have to die of starvation, and more than once, while they were trying every method of raising money or supplies, with scarcely a hope of procuring them, not to say of procuring them in time, abundant assistance would most opportunely be afforded by the unexpected gift of some charitable private individual, 
for, in the midst of the common stupefaction and indifference to others, arising from continual apprehensions for themselves, there were yet hearts ever awake to the call of charity, and others in whom charity first sprang up on the failure of all earthly pleasures, as in the destruction and flight of many whose duty it was to superintend and provide, there were others, ever healthy in body and unshaken in courage, who were always at their posts, while some there even were who, urged by compassion, assumed, and perseveringly sustained, cares to which their office did not call them. End of chapter 32, part 1